want. Trey Clemens requested to hear. Oh, it doesn't man. close, unfortunately. I know. <laughs> some, some, it got broken. Sorry, gang. Hey, everybody. Uh, good morning. So Clint already made fun of me because uh, when they sent out the text message asking for people to teach, I was the first person to respond, which is apparently something you still get made fun of, even as an adult. Um, I know that happens in high school. I see that all the time. Um, but I was so excited that the one of the weeks they were looking for was a week that I actually was not already committed to teach on the other side of the building. So I went for it. And then since then, I have felt like the cards have been stacked <laughs> against me to teach. Uh, so this week I was in Minneapolis for a conference. If you watch the weather at all, as, as you get older, I find out you watch the Weather Channel more and more and more until you're like 60 and it's all you watch. Um, but so I was watching, uh, Minneapolis got a huge snowstorm this weekend. We were supposed to fly out Friday night and the snowstorm came in at lunchtime on Friday. Um, so we had preemptively moved our flight forward to 3 p.m. to get out, which obviously wasn't going to work. So they uh, called our school group. We were at a conference. They called our school group and said, well, your flight's canceled. And I was like, well, I guess we'll be here all weekend, which, by the way, you still can't get out of Minneapolis, so I would still be there. But my head of school, who's a daring and crazy person, said, let's drive. So we drove uh, through a blizzard. Um, I have pictures because it scared the mess out of me. It did not scare him. Uh, Trent's from Colorado, so he seemed to think it was normal. But, oh, sorry, you got lots of animations here, man. Uh, come on. Maybe I don't have pictures. There it is. That's the road, and there's Trent's <laughs> face. Um, and that was seven hours like that. Like, I've never been so anxious for so long. <laughs> and we kept saying, is it safe? Do you know what you're doing? He's like, oh, this is fine. This is nothing. Like. What is this place that you come from? Which is Colorado. Like, what do you know? Um, and then every now and then we'd have to, you know, stop to pee. Uh, and that was even more terrifying because the roads that weren't the interstate were worse than that. That's the interstate. Uh, so we did that for seven hours. And then when we finally crossed the state line from Iowa into Missouri and the rain turned to, or the snow turned to sleet, I've never felt like so relaxed by sleet and ice on the road, ironically. I was like, I feel better now. And then St. Louis, it turned to rain. And then we got back at like 2 a.m. on Saturday morning. I was like, well, we made it. So then I was excited that I get to be with you. Uh, and then Juliet spiked a fever this morning. Uh, it's 102. I took it 30 minutes ago. So now she's on her way to the doctor with my mom because Ashley's at home with the new baby who's a month old. It has been a weekend. So apologies in advance if this is not as organized as it might normally be. Uh, but all the same, I'm really excited about it. So it's interesting when I'm on the road for 14 hours with this lovely group of people um, and we're trying to amuse ourselves and distract ourselves from our imminent doom, uh, you know, we try to keep the conversation going the whole time, trying to fall asleep the whole time, like he wouldn't let anyone else drive, which was fine with us. I'm not driving in that. Uh, we would have stopped at a hotel in Iowa. So then uh, we're just, you know, various conversations, telling stories. And so finally, I'm, we're running dry on topics after like seven hours. So I was like, hey guys, so I'm teaching on iniquity on Sunday. <laughs> Anyone got any great ideas? And they all just kind of stared at me. It was really awkward. And then our lower school principal who was in the car said, iniquity, when something is uneven or incorrect. I was like, you just Googled it. That's not helping me at all. So then the theology student, who's also in the back seat with me, uh, is like, 
well, you know what I suspect you do is get this textbook that I read once and blah, 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 and you're gonna read this, check it out of the library. Now, when is this again? I was like, this is Sunday. Oh, well, that's not gonna work. I was like, no, it's not. You got any great ideas? No, I would just say dig into the theology on it. It's like, well, great, you're really encouraging. So here's where we are. We're gonna talk about iniquity. Uh, I'm really excited about this series. So once I signed up for iniquity and found out that I would get to do it, I watched all the videos. So I hadn't been here for the others, uh, but I've been listening and watching the videos. I'm excited. I think of the three words, sin, transgression, and iniquity, iniquity is the one that I am least comfortable using in normal speech. Um, so I'm excited to kind of dig into that with you guys. So we'll start with the Bible Project video, uh, and then we'll kind of go from there. It's in here somewhere. There it is. But we, oh. And that's true. It's also true that the Bible's vocabulary about this topic sounds odd to modern people, using words like sin, iniquity, or transgression. And so the Bible's perspective on the human condition is often ignored or treated as ancient and backwards. This is really unfortunate. Because through these words, the biblical authors are offering us a deeply profound diagnosis of human nature. Sin refers to moral failure, and transgression describes how we break trust with others. And iniquity? No one even uses that word anymore. So what's it all about? In Bible translations, iniquity is one way the Hebrew word avon gets translated. It's also rendered by words like wickedness, guilt, or sin. So what does avon actually mean? The word avon is related to a Hebrew verb ava, which means to be bent or crooked. The poet of Psalm 36 says his back is avad, that is, bent over in pain. Or in Lamentations chapter 3, a road that isn't straight is one that avaz, that is, it's twisty and crooked. Now, this image of being crooked offered biblical poets a powerful metaphor to talk about people's behavior. Like Jeremiah, who said that Israel had avad their way by violating their covenant with God and giving allegiance to idols. Or in the book of Job, a person who morally fails is someone who avaz what is right. In both cases, something that's supposed to be level or even your choices or your conscience has been bent out of shape, distorted. In the Bible, avon refers to all kinds of crooked behavior. Ten commandments kind of stuff, lying, murder, adultery. In Isaiah chapter 59, avon describes the corruption among Israel's leaders who are ignoring the injustice done to the poor. The prophet cleverly adapts the metaphor, saying, we have so much avon, that is crookedness, that uprightness can't even enter our city. Things were so morally distorted in Jerusalem that crooked was the new straight. Another fascinating thing about the word avon is that it refers not only to distorted behavior, but also to the crooked consequences, the hurt people, the broken relationships, the cycles of retaliation. You find this idea in the biblical phrase to punish, which in biblical Hebrew is to visit someone's avon upon them. That is, to let them sit in the consequences of their crooked choices. This is what the prophet Jeremiah said about the Babylonians who were destroying other nations. One day, those nations would destroy them in return. And so Babylon's divine punishment would be having to live in a disfigured world of its own making. This is actually the main way biblical authors talk about God's response to human avon, letting people experience the crooked consequences of their choices. This is the meaning of the common biblical phrase, to bear your iniquity, or in Hebrew, to carry your avon. God gives people the dignity of carrying the consequences of their bad decisions. But that's not the only way God responds to avon in the Bible. He also offers to carry the avon of corrupt people as an act of sheer generosity. In fact, carrying avon is the most common Hebrew phrase for God's forgiveness. Like Psalm 32, where the poet says, I didn't hide my avon, but confessed it, and you carried the avon of my sin. 
This is actually shocking if you stop and think about it. God forgives people by taking responsibility for their avon. This idea reaches its high point in the book of Isaiah, where God appoints a figure called the servant. He will embody God's forgiving love by carrying the avon of many and allowing it to crush him. This servant will absorb humanity's crookedness, letting it overwhelm and destroy him. But that's not the end of the story. The servant will emerge out the other side of death, alive and well, so he can offer his life to others. When you get to the New Testament, the apostles carry these ideas forward using the Greek word monomia, which has a similar meaning. Like Paul the Apostle, he identified the servant as Jesus, and he said, Our great God and Savior, Jesus the Messiah, gave his life on our behalf in order to redeem us from all of our onomia, our crooked behavior and its consequences. And so, the whole biblical story is about God's desire to take crooked people and the twisted world that we've created and to make everything right. Through Jesus, God invites us to become whole humans once again, people who can walk upright with God and with each other. And that's the story behind the biblical words for iniquity. All right, so, okay. Um, really excited about iniquity for a few reasons. For one, uh, it's almost exclusively used in the Old Testament which is my favorite testament to teach, so that works out well. Uh, really, there's only two references to iniquity in the New Testament, and one is the one they mentioned in the video there that Paul uses, and the other is another one from Paul, uh, which is understandable given that Paul's right, our Pharisee of Pharisees, so of course he's deeply involved in the Old Testament, he knows it, so he's the one that's linking to it. But generally, iniquity is being, when iniquity is being discussed, it's in the Old Testament, and it's also kind of predominantly being used in what we might call more poetic type passages. It's not really being pulled out in political stories or kings fighting kings or anything like that. We can see sin and transgression there. But iniquity is reserved for something different. Um, definitely in the works of poetry, from the prophets, but it's when they're trying to access something that is deeper than a simple definition of an act, right? There's some sort of emotion invested in it, and they're trying to find a way to convey that to you. So, um, one of the things I think that's valuable when we're looking at a word that we don't really understand is just to kind of take some examples and look at a few different ways that it's been used. Not all of them, obviously, but just a couple of the different types of ways that it's used. And hopefully by doing that, we can have a deeper understanding of the word. Uh, it's exactly what I do when I hear new high school slang at work and I don't really know what it means. I just kind of sit back and listen for it for a while and kind of I saw it used here and here so I can kind of understand what it means. Uh, so that's what we're going to do. So. Uh, Basically, if iniquity is the idea of something being crooked or unbalanced, um, or even perhaps kind of bent out of shape to the point that it no longer serves the purpose for which it was created, okay? Um, I think all those words kind of sound like different parts of speech, which is probably why we struggle with iniquity so much. Um, the way that avon is used, right? Uh, gets translated a lot of different ways, and so sometimes it doesn't seem to make sense in our brains, so that's kind of helpful. But so if it's this idea of things being made crooked, things no longer being fair or just or working the way that they're supposed to, um, or even coming to work a new way, 
that is not good, right? But because of the way that things have been so bent out of shape, they no longer function the way that they should. Uh, when I was first looking at it, I kind of thought of like an iron worker and, and a smith, right? And he's got some tool and he's gonna use it to constantly reshape stuff. Uh, but eventually, if he's reshaped that enough without totally melting it down, whatever he's reshaping cannot be reshaped again, right? So when something becomes bent and, and out of shape enough, it's nothing good for nothing except to be melted down and restarted. So kind of a similar idea here. So uh, there's kind of three main places that we see iniquity used in the Old Testament. So we're going to look at all three of those, two of those in, in a bit more depth than the other. But the first is in the book of Psalms, uh, which makes sense, right, based on what I just said. Um, so it appears in quite a few of the Psalms, but not all of them. But it's really fascinating. If you look at the Psalms that iniquity appears in, uh, you know, a lot of times biblical scholars like to categorize the Psalms and put them in different buckets. And sometimes they disagree over what the buckets are or what goes in what bucket. But they're almost exclusively used in what we would call lament Psalms. So when things are bad, uh, when people are crying out to God, either for forgiveness or just bemoaning the state of things. So that is where iniquity comes in. So I picked out one that I think is particularly good if you want to turn along with me. It's Psalm 31. Um, so it's a Psalm of David. And David obviously has plenty of things to be bemoaning. Uh, but this particular Psalm uh, is kind of set before David has even become king. So David, uh, obviously he's been anointed king, but he is not serving as the king yet. Saul is serving as the king. And Saul has some serious jealousy issues with David. The people love David. They sing about David and make him feel really bad about himself. So of course he starts trying to kill David and pursues David you know, all over the land. Uh, David multiple times has an opportunity uh, to kill Saul and doesn't do it, but continues to get chased even though he does so. Uh, the second graders particularly love the story where Saul's pooping and he doesn't kill him because, I mean, there's poop involved. Who doesn't love a good poop story? Um, so this particular uh, is set after all that pursuing. David is not king yet, but he's still been hotly pursued by Saul. Um, so I'm going to kind of start around verse, uh, start in verse 1 and kind of read my way through so you can follow along if you would like or just listen. Uh, oh, wait, hold on. I wanted to use my phone. I changed translations uh, for this one. You'll see if you're an NIV person, iniquity is almost never in the Bible because they know that nobody knows what that means. Uh, if you're an ESV person, you'll find it a lot more. I don't know about other translations. Those are my two favorites. So uh, in Psalm 31, he says, uh, In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame in your righteousness. Deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge and a strong fortress. For you are my rock and my fortress, and your name's sake you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me. For you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love, because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul, and you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. And you have set my feet in a broad place. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel. 
pause there. You can read the rest of that on your own time. But the idea here, and this is interesting to me when I read this, because when I first read it, it sounds very much like you can kind of clearly see based on that context I provided for us, right, where David is connecting with what's going on to him, right? People are after him. He's remaining faithful to God. People that take him in no longer want to take him in because it's dangerous to do so. So he's become a reproach to his neighbors and to these people that might formerly look out for him. And he cries out to God because of his iniquity, which feels weird to me. Like it feels like he'd be talking about some other kind of iniquity, right? Is, is David crying about something that he has done wrong? Well, in this case, in this case of the word of on, we're looking more at an example of David is decrying the, the setting of the world. The world has become crooked and backward because of these circumstances that have happened to him. So yes, it's his, yes, it's personal, right? But this setting around him has become so crooked and uneven that it has brought ruin upon him. And all he can do is cry out to God and say, help, right? I've remained faithful. Why is this happening to me? Um, so I think the first kind of way we can see Yvonne is uh, it's used in these places where you want deep emotion, right? David's not talking about a, a single thing that's happened, right? This is the outcome of years of experience, right? all these uh, causes piling on top of each other to land up with this big effect at the end. And it's not something that, I mean, it's a, a devastating effect, right? That affects him, that affects all of the people around him, both kind of friend and foe. And it kind of twists out of shape the, uh, the social order of ancient Israel, right? Instead of having a just king who is governing a world or a country, right? Uh, he's I mean, got kind of a deranged maniac chasing him everywhere and assaulting people who may or may not be friends with David. And David can't wait out or to become king. So all the way that God has designed for his people to live has been disrupted and become backwards. Okay, so that's kind of that idea of things being uneven or, or being twisted and things being bent out of shape. Um, that's a common theme when you see iniquity in these lament psalms, okay? Uh, this is kind of our example, but frequently they're talking, it's always something big, right? It's not something, uh, a singular event. It's almost always years and years and years of precedent piled on top of one another. Um, so the other, so the second spot, which we're not gonna really look at, because I think we can just talk about it briefly, is iniquity pops up a whole bunch in the book of Job, which kind of makes sense, <laughs> right? Uh, of course, we know the story of Job, right? Loads of terrible things happen to Job. Then for the bulk of the book of Job, his friends try to talk him into turning on God, and he doesn't. And then at the end, God gives him lots of good stuff, basically, right? But throughout the story, people reference Job's iniquity to him and say, uh, look at these things that have happened to you. The world's order is not what it should be, right? You should not be suffering these things. Your world has become uneven or twisted in a way that it should not be if God is a just God, right? It's not, in this case, although it all happens to Job kind of quickly, right? It's more about, look at this. This whole picture of the world cannot be true. If God is just, then all of this is iniquity. All of this is uneven and wrong. Um, but it's still kind of linked with suffering and, and kind of deep suffering. But my personal favorite of the three examples that I've kind of pulled out of iniquity in the Old Testament comes from the prophets. Personally, I love the prophets. They're my favorite, so that's why we're here. Um, and if you look at where iniquity appears in the prophets, it consistently appears in the prophets that are pre-exilic prophets, right? So prophets before Judah has been ripped out into exile. You don't see it almost at all 
in the ones that happened during and after the exile. So Daniel almost doesn't talk about iniquity at all. Um, and he writes most of his during the exile, right? Uh, or like Malachi or these prophets that are writing after the exile, once the return has happened, they're not talking about iniquity. So that's kind of clue number one, right? Uh, so we're looking at these prophets who are writing before the exile has happened. And in each case, they're, they're discussing iniquity in detail, okay? The two or the places where we see iniquity the most, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, okay? which makes sense because they're the big books that are also pre-exilic prophets. But they're there and they spend, like iniquity appears almost every chapter in all three of those books, which in Isaiah's case is a whole lot of times, right? There's 66 chapters in there. Uh, so if you want to follow along again, we're skipping over to Jeremiah and this is chapter 14. So Jeremiah is here and um, Israel has already been conquered and destroyed pretty much by the nation of Assyria. Uh, and Judah is barely hanging on. Jeremiah is kind of like one of our last prophets to prophesy uh, while Judah is kind of constantly under attack. And in the last uh, about 75 years of Judah's existence, they spend a lot of time uh, seemingly getting conquered. Like someone comes in and they are about to get destroyed and they offer up all kinds of gold and they'll pay tribute. And then the person's like, okay, fine, you guys can stay. I don't want to mess with you. Just send me money and they leave. And then like 20 years later, somebody else does the same thing. Uh, so at this point, they've already been paying tribute to other countries probably for the lifetime of anybody who was alive at the time. Um, but Babylon's knocking on the door. They've already been knocking on the door several other times in their recent past. Uh, and you have to imagine if you're somebody living at this time that the world feels out of order, right? I mean, this is all you have known your entire life. Um, but maybe if you've got some righteous people in your family, and generally we hear that there's some righteousness still alive in Judah throughout all of this, and that's why they're spared, right? Um, but maybe you have some relative who still says, no, we are God's chosen people. Like, how do you square that with this feeling of impending doom that always seems to circle back around? And Jeremiah uh, also uses iniquity more than almost anyone, but I think it's because Jeremiah is kind of our more poetic prophet. He also writes Lamentations, which we'll look at in a second. And so he has a very good way of kind of trying to get at the heart of a matter. So we're going to kind of look at chapter 14. Yep. So the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah concerning the drought. Oh yeah, I forgot to mention that. So there's a drought. That happens several times, okay? Uh, Judah mourns and her gates languish. Her people lament on the ground and the cry of Jerusalem goes up. Her nobles send their servants for water. They come to the cisterns and they find no water. They return with their vessels empty. They are ashamed and confounded and cover their heads. Because of the ground that is dismayed, since there is no rain on the land and the farmers are ashamed, they cover their heads. Even the doe in the field forsakes her newborn fawn because there is no grass. The wild donkeys stand on the bare heights. They pant for air like jackals. Their eyes fail because there is no vegetation. Though our iniquities testify against us, act, O Lord, for your name's sake. For our backslidings are many and we have sinned against you. O oh, you hope of Israel, its savior in the time of trouble. Why should you be like a stranger in the land, like a traveler who turns aside to tarry for a night? Why should you be like a man confused, like a mighty warrior who cannot save us? Yet you, O oh Lord, are in the midst of us, and we are called by your name. Do not leave us. I think it kind of, the more examples we kind of look at, 
the idea of the scope of iniquity just kind of becomes more evident, right? Um, and why maybe it's almost exclusively used in the Old Testament. Not that there's not suffering in the New, but as far as documenting political disaster, the Old Testament's kind of the place for that. Um, when Jeremiah describes everything that has been brought upon Judah by their iniquities, right? No one is spared. He's not just talking about the adults who have caused iniquity. He's talking about the suffering of children, the suffering of animals, right? The land itself, which is God's realm, has been banished to being barren, right? All these aspects of the world, not just the people, but the world is out of shape because of this iniquity, which I think ties in with what the Bible Project video also says, that God is comfortable with letting man sit in the consequences of their own iniquity. Um, in the previous two examples, right, in Job and in the Psalms, it's very much about, I'm struggling with this iniquity that was not necessarily created by me, right? The world is crooked or broken or fallen or whatever, right? And things are not as they should be, not as you have designed them to be, uh, and I don't know what to do, right? Deliver me from this somehow. But Jeremiah's is very different. Jeremiah's is, this is because of us, and we know that we deserve it, or at least Jeremiah does. I don't know if everyone who heard Jeremiah was a big fan since they threw him in the pit, right? But we have brought this upon ourselves, but we still want you to deliver us. We know you can. Why won't you, right? Like, you're a warrior. You do care for us, so why won't you just save us from our own problems? Um, okay, just put a finger in that. We'll come back there. Because uh, I want to go ahead and read the other one first, and then we can talk about both together. So also, if you'll turn over to Lamentations. So we're still talking about Jeremiah. This is Lamentations, or head to Lamentations chapter 2. Um, so Jeremiah also writes Lamentations to uh, lament. Huh, key word today, right? So, um, but I think that in Lamentations... In particular, Jeremiah draws out kind of an important theme that I think maybe can kind of help us come to grasp with iniquity both in its Old Testament context and maybe in its modern context. Because like the video said, nobody uses iniquity anymore, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't apply or that it's not very relevant and real. So this is Lamentations. Did I want to start at verse 1? Let me look at my notes. Sure, let's start at verse 1. Okay, uh, so this is still... Uh, talking about the Babylonians, and at this point we're a little further forward historically, so we have burned and destroyed more things at this point. Okay, How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the habitations of Jacob. In his wrath, he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground into dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand. In the face of the enemy, he has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. He has bent his bow like an enemy, with his right hand set like a foe. And he has killed all who were delightful in our eyes. In the tent of the daughter of Zion, he has poured out his fury like fire. Quick pause while we're still going. Remember, iniquity is almost always used in these kind of poetic, real emotional contexts, so we're very feeling that right now, right? Lamentations 2 is especially kind of, the whole book of Lamentations is almost a work of poetry, right? He's describing the terrible things that are happening. He's trying to evoke an emotional response in the people who are reading it. So, uh, the Lord has become like an enemy. 
He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has laid in ruin its strongholds, and he has multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. He has laid waste his booth like a garden, laid in ruins his meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath, and in his fierce indignation has spurned king and priest. The Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They raised a clamor in the house of the Lord as on the day of a festival. The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line, and he did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused rampart and wall to lament, and they languished together. Um, then if you skim down um, to 13. What can I say for you? To what compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken to you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. I think when we look at the scale of the iniquity in Jeremiah and Lamentations that is brought upon by the behavior of the Israelites, and the key difference being that they did it versus David and Job who are suffering because of something else. Um, the real interesting fact is that most of the Israelites probably don't know about their iniquity. They are blind to it. Lamentations, when Jeremiah is writing in there, he talks about how your prophets have deceived you. They haven't really showed you your iniquity. They've told you what you wanted to hear um, to the point that you don't even know that you're crooked anymore. You think that you're on the straight path and you're oblivious to how crooked it has become. So as I was reading that, I was thinking back to my uh, very anxiety-filled ride back from Minnesota um, because I learned a lot about driving in the snow and also that I never want to do it. Um, but what happens is as you're driving along on these like blizzard streets, um, you just hope nobody else comes along. Like it was snowing very heavily, like it was accumulating about, I think they said two inches every hour, which I hear is a lot. I don't know, I'm not really used to snow. Um, so it's accumulating pretty rapidly. But every time another vehicle would come up on us, like that's when I really lost it, okay? Because, uh, and it was always a tractor trailer, because they were the only ones out driving besides us. Uh, and they would always pass us, which would always make me really grumpy. Or Trent would pass them, which would make me really scared also. I'm like, dude, we can stay, stay behind them forever. Don't worry about it. Um, so when they would pass you, like they would kick up all the snow that had been piling up on the ground because obviously, well, we passed a lot of plows, but there were not always plows, right? So uh, there'd be a lot of snow building up on the highway. So when someone passes you, especially a big tractor trailer, it kicks it all up and you get a whiteout, which I also did not know what that was. Um, and it is terrifying because uh, it happened multiple times. And every time, it was really funny. So we were in a minivan and there's like basically three rows of us in the back row. Me and the other high school teacher, we just looked at each other every time it happened. We go, and I always kind of braced myself on the chair in front of me just in case there was something. Because like I know there was a car up there and now I can't see it anymore. Like it could be right there. So I'm bracing myself. The two lower school teachers who were in the, the middle row, they would always like grab each other which I guess is like a lower school thing. Like high school teacher, I don't want to touch the other high school teacher. Like there's some personal space, but the lower school teachers, they're real handsy. So they were just like <laughs> <laughs> And then up in the front, we got a um, teacher, a uh, middle school teacher who just kind of just locks up. Like they're in the front seat though. They're trying to act cool because Trent's right there. You know, just kinda 
And the driver's just like, <laughs> it's like, dude, calm down. But in that moment, when all that snow is kicked up and it's whited out, I don't know where the road is. I don't know if we're going straight. Like, I assume we're still going straight, but for all we know, we could be spinning out, and I probably wouldn't know too much unless we're doing it really fast, right? And I think that's kind of where the Israelites find themselves, right? They find themselves in this almost permanent whiteout, right? They have caused so much pain, done so much wrong, right? Applied those other bad words we've talked about, sin and transgression, that they can no longer see the outcome of what they've done. And I think usually, usually, when we do something wrong and we have at least a little bit of time to think about it and step back from it, we can see how whatever it was that we did harmed someone or caused some wrong in the greater scheme of things, right? Uh, when you lie to someone and then later you feel guilty about it because you see the result of that lie, whether it's like they did the wrong thing because you lied to them or because they no longer trust you or whatever, like there's some consequence for that lie. Um, but the people of Israel don't see it. Everything's normal. And not just everything's normal with each person personally, but everything is normal with the world. Like, yeah, things are bad, we're starving. Like, there's even references in Jeremiah of people eating their children, which is generally not seen as acceptable, I would think. Um, and they're just saying, well, so it is. This can't be because of anything we've done. This can't be because of any great act that we've done. It can't be because we've forsaken God consistently over a very long period of time. Um, seems kind of... I guess as it should be. I mean, they're sad, but they're not looking at it the right way, I suppose. Uh, it reminds me, um, so one of the courses I teach um, is African American history, and right about now, we're entering in kind of the depressing part of the unit, which is saying something when you're talking about African American history, and there's a lot of depressing stuff to talk about. Um, but we're in the most kind of depressing portion where the worst stuff is happening and people are trying to figure out what's going on. And one of the questions that inevitably comes up every year is my students will ask me kind of like, well, what were the churches doing, Dr. Frizzell? I'm like, well, thanks for bringing that up because it's not pretty, right? Um, and we talk about the white churches involved in with race uh, and racism, and especially in the South, but even nationally, right? It's not just the South, but even nationally, it's pretty ugly, right? Uh, Christians using the Bible to justify mistreatment of other humans. Um, they cannot see their iniquity. In their mind, what they have made has become so twisted that it now seems normal. And they can't see the fact that it was ever twisted at all. The, whatever it is that's been turned into a new shape, they assume the new shape is the way it always was. And I think when we kind of fast forward, like to me, that's iniquity, present tense, uh, or at least recent past tense, but probably present tense too, right? This idea that it's almost a overconfidence in ourselves and our ability and our interpretation um, that sometimes leads us astray. Um, when we look at um, biblical examples of iniquity, it's really easy to point fingers, right? Past tense, hindsight's always easy. Uh, but in the present tense, like what, do we have some blind spots? Do we have some spots where as a church, this church or larger church, you know, big church, big C church, small C church, whatever, do we have blind spots where our consistent, consistently incorrect stance or judgments or attitudes have created something where the world, as God intended it, has become crooked, and we're no longer able to see it because of it. Like if Jeremiah were alive and writing, 
would he be saying, good job, guys? Or would he be lamenting crookedness? I don't know. That's a you question. That's for your brain for later. Um, I have thoughts, but I am not going to tell them to you. <laughs> I promised my wife when I started teaching adults, I guess, what, two years ago, that I would not get overly preachy. So here I am not doing that. We'll let Eric, Eric do that. That's She's his job. Yeah. She's not going to listen to the podcast. We could say mean things about her right now, and she would never know. She would never know. Um, but I think it's a legitimate question. Um, I think it doesn't take a lot of imagining to think about at least different people around the world who might have different perspectives on that. But I think it's incumbent upon us to be humble enough to think that we don't have it right. I mean, we can't. We're human. We're fallible, right? What are the things that we are messing up the most consistently? And are those, have we created false expectations of the world or of ourselves or what is right because of those things? And that's when we've kind of stumbled into that path of iniquity. Um, so I had intended for us to discuss that for a second, but I'm gonna instead, I feel after saying it, to let you sit with that. Does that sound good? I mean, you can, you can change mine, you're in charge here. No, I'm just I'm just the guest. <laughs> Whatever you would prefer. Thank you. I, I prefer I think sometimes so I'm a I do prepare as a teacher, but I also tend to wing it a lot, like kind of drift where it's taken me, and I feel like that's where it's taken me. It's just we're gonna sit. Great. And and I want you to think about it. Hopefully everybody's off work tomorrow. I'm off work tomorrow. And uh, you're not? No. I can still think about it at work. Yeah, you could. You could. I always tell my students, it's MLK weekend, and since I teach African-American history, I always say, over the weekend, you have to read something by Dr. King. Go read a speech or something. Um, and so then as I was thinking about that and thinking about this and the embarrassing record of churches, especially in the 60s, you know, where they're calling out King for his mistakes, um, I don't know. I think there's a lot where we have the ability to get things wrong and we're blind to it. So I think that's the value of iniquity and probably one of the reasons we don't use it besides the word fun, the besides the fact that it sounds weird right um and that i don't know anyone would know how to use it in conversation it's that i mean it's kind of a condemning term i don't think anyone's using it like in their moment of iniquity um like we saw in the old testament it's generally reserved for poetry when people are reflecting on stuff or expressing this deep emotional feeling it's not like man do you see all the iniquity around here like we don't do that so i don't know there's your homework and I won't be back here next week, so you can complain about me and all that stuff and what I said next week. But it was nice to be here. So thanks, guys. I think that was everything I had. That was great. All right. Here you go.